0: You're listening to Kingdom Empire and Plus Ultra, Conversations on the History of Portugal and Spain, 1415-1898, to 1898, a podcast series brought to you by HistoryHub.ie and UCD School of History. We're speaking today with Dr. Zoltan Biederman of University College London. Dr. Biederman is Senior Lecturer in Luso-Brazilian Studies and Head of Department of Spanish, Portuguese and Latin American Studies at the UCL School of European Languages, Culture and Society. He is author of a number of works, including The Portuguese in Sri Lanka and South India, published in 2014, and The Historical Atlas of the Persian Gulf, published in 2006. He is also currently completing Connected Empires, Sri Lanka, Portugal and the Making of Habsburg Imperialism in Asia 1500-1600, to for which he received an AHRC grant and is co-editing a number of publications. He has been involved in several collaborative research projects, including Lettres de Frailes Escritas Franciscanas en el Imperio Portugués at the Universidad Complutense de Madrid, O Governo dos Outros at the University of Lisbon, Comentarios de Don García de Silva y Figueroa at the New University of Lisbon, and Median at the French National Research Agency in Paris. He was the recipient of the Ronald Tress Prize for Research Excellence in 2012 and has been recently elected a corresponding member of the Academy of the Portuguese Marine. And he is co editor of the Maritime Asia Book Series at the German publisher Harasewitz. Drs. Biedermann, Zoltan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Good morning. Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Zoltan, today we're discussing the importance of diplomacy in the Portuguese Empire especially in Asia, which uh, you have said was a very different reality to what the Portuguese encountered in Africa and the New World. And you say, and I'm going to quote here, uh, to understand how the Portuguese went from a handful of trading posts on the shores of the Arabian Sea to dominating global maritime trade, creating a transcontinental imperial apparatus, conquering some lands and converting substantial populations to Catholicism, it is crucial to take into account their negotiative capabilities. This is not to say that post-reconquista militarism, Catholic universalism and trade capitalism did not stand at the heart of the Portuguese expansionist process. But in order for such hegemonic impulses to be articulated with the political realities of other societies and naval power to be transformed into a sustainable presence on the lands, the Portuguese needed to negotiate. So can you give us a brief overview of why diplomacy was so important for the Portuguese?
1: Yes. So this is a long sentence. The quote that you gave is a long sentence to address a big topic. Uh, let me unpack this a little bit. Um, our point of departure around 1400 is a small, poor and marginal country in the southwestern corner of Europe. A um, point of arrival just about 150, 200 years later is a country that has a global empire, that um, possesses some of the richest emporia in the world and that has in its own way a certain centrality for um, the ways the world worked um, at the time. Um as you know, even today, of course, uh, Portuguese is the language of over 200 million people across the world. Um, so we really have a bit of a mystery there to, to solve. How did we go from this tiny, poor, marginal country to something that really played a major role in the making of the world we live in today? There are a number of different processes that went hand in hand here. Uh, One has to do, of course, and this is probably the one that comes to mind most instinctively to people in the um, English-speaking world, is of course what we call conquista conquista, um, and the spirit of conquest. This seems a very intuitive, very self-evident argument given that um, Iberian societies, both the Portuguese and the Castilians, um, spent much of the medieval period reconquering their own territory reconquest of course is their own way of putting uh it um it was really a conquest of course and it makes sense to assume that this process of conquest was then just extended uh to the north of africa the new world other parts of the world we also we we also know of course that religious zeal the idea of um mission was central to iberian expansion and um Last but not least, that trade and navigation were, of course, uh, core uh, parts of the expansion process. Um, and I don't wish to dismiss any of these uh, three major factors. Um, to which we may add, we, we may add other uh, factors such as, for example, um, curiosity—just the, the wish, the desire to put new lands on the map—which certainly also plays, play, played a role. Um, all I'm trying to say is that there is. Another aspect that we need to take into account, and that is negotiation or to put it more broadly, diplomacy. Why is diplomacy so important? Because as the Portuguese expanded into various corners of the world, it was not evident how they could actually stay in those places and how they could actually build a sustainable presence in those places. Just to give you um, a few key moments when the Portuguese arrive in the Gulf of Guinea in the 1460s, 70s, they begin to encounter societies that are fairly well organized, centralized with strong political st- structures uh, where they cannot just do what they want as they did on the, on parts of the West coast of Africa. As soon as they, they hit the wall, so to say um, with better structured, militarily more capable societies in West Africa, the Portuguese have to start to negotiate. There's no way around it. And in fact, West Africa, that is the the lands along the Gulf of Guinea, are a sort of an experimental ground for diplomacy, where the Portuguese learn uh, a lot about how to negotiate. I think we may come back to this later again. When the Portuguese arrive in Asian waters, first in East Africa and then in Asia, South Asia, in 1498, a very similar situation arises. The Portuguese are newcomers in a densely interconnected world where um, people, city-states, merchant groups, empires have been operating for centuries, if not millennia. And in order to get a foothold in this system. The Portuguese do various things, but one of the things they have to do is to negotiate. In a sense, what I'm trying to say, if you want to boil it down to one word, diplomacy is what articulates, It what serves as an articulating medium between a process of expansion that happens on the seas and the attempt to actually stay on the lands where The Portuguese would arrive and there develop a a sustainable presence that could sustain then the trading system globally.
0: So clearly this is a very important topic, but why do you think that Portuguese diplomacy in the East is such an under-researched theme?
1: So diplomatic history overall is not a field that is fully developed. Um, I think diplomacy has gone through... As a, as a historiographical topic has gone through various cycles, and we all know the sort of the old-fashioned, very dusty diplomatic history of the '60s, 70s, um, which then went clearly into decline, and it's only recently that we have had a revival and what is now fashionably called the new diplomatic history, which only really started happening a few years ago. Portuguese expansion history as a whole is also an under-researched um, field of study. Uh, For various reasons, linguistic reasons, institutional reasons, Spanish history has always had a much bigger weight in the Anglophone um, countries. Um, So if you combine these two handicaps, if you want, uh, the fact that diplomatic history overall is understudied and Portuguese imperial or expansion history is also, at least in the Anglophone sphere, underrated, understudied, then the combination of the two Portuguese diplomatic history has uh, really been squeezed and has has not really received much attention at all now I have to I have to clarify something here any history of the Portuguese Empire um, any reference work written in Portuguese or in English will contain many episodes many events developments that have to do with diplomacy so it's not that diplomacy is not mentioned but diplomacy as such is usually placed in the service of political history, or economic history, social history, not, it is not studied as a topic in itself, how diplomacy works, what its mechanisms are, what its culture is, what its social field is. Those are questions that are largely open.
0: Can you explain how the nature and structure of the Portuguese Empire in the 16th century differed from that of its closest rival, the Spanish Empire, and how this might have affected its uh, approach to diplomacy.
1: So the standard answer to this is, of course, that we have territorial conquest in the new world versus trading posts, a more network like maritime uh, system in um, the South Atlantic uh, and in Asian waters, maritime Asia, as we say. Now, there is some truth in this. I'm not going to say that there isn't, but we need to be aware that essentializing is always a poor option uh, for for a deepened understanding in history. One of the first caveats, of course, that comes to mind is that Brazil, which is a Portuguese colony, uh, is also in the New World. And while its territorial expansion happened here a little later, let's say at a different pace from the conquista that the Spanish achieved in Mexico and Peru, still Brazil is a major territorial colony um, and it's Portuguese. Um, second, of course, I think diplomacy was actually quite important in the new world as well, even in those very hard hitting moments of um, Cortese's and Pizarro's conquista in Mexico and Peru. Negotiations uh, were going on all the time. Um, I think in Brazil, there was a lot of negotiation between uh, Portuguese, um, the Portuguese military, but also uh, plantation owners, um, city dwellers, with the uh, Tupi-speaking tribes around them. For example, and a large chunks of this history are still to be written. Um, so I'm not saying you know, that there's only diplomacy in a context of maritime expansion, where the Portuguese um, need to find their, their their footholds on the land in. Africa and Asia. Thirdly, I think it's also important to acknowledge that across the Iberian world, whether it's in the New World in Africa or in Asia, you have a number of shared institutions, shared processes. Um, We have papal bulls to legitimize the expansionist enterprise on both sides. We have an agreement in 1494 about how to divide the world, uh, to which both sides uh, mean to stick with Tordesillas, of course, we have um, a shared universalism, uh, of which we'll talk later probably. Uh, We have trade uh, in both empires and a strong sense that the crown wishes to control at least parts of that trade uh, in both empires. Both empires uh, work with figures such as viceroys and governors, um, which is basically institutionally speaking, something that uh, comes from the Aragonese sphere, the Aragonese empire in the Mediterranean in the late medieval period, and is taken by the Castilians to the New World, by the Portuguese to Asia, um, more or less at the same time. Uh, We have Shared legal and municipal institutions and regulations, municipal councils, religious orders that cross borders, uh, highly trained astronomers, cartographers, engineers, etc. Um, all of these things are common to both empires. The reason why I'm I'm really placing so much emphasis on this is that it is very, very easy to slip into an essentializing contrast between the Spanish and the Portuguese Empire, and I. Really don't wish that to happen here. So I think what I'm trying to say is that diplomacy is quite important in the Portuguese sphere. But I very much hope actually that someone can soon disprove me in a sense to say it is equally important, um, say somewhere in the Spanish possessions in the New World or in uh, the Portuguese possessions in Brazil. This is really um, an open field. I'm, I'm really trying to open a door into a field that is largely understudied and where I feel there's a lot of potential for further development.
0: You've suggested that the complexity of Portuguese diplomacy in Asia is misunderstood in part because of the enduring uh, legacy of the so-called black legend. Um, when we talk about this famous legend of Iberian imperialism, we more often than not refer to Spanish atrocities in the New World. Do you think it's been applied with the same fervor uh, to Portuguese imperialism? And if so, how closely does the legend align with historical truth, in your opinion?
1: The brief answer is no, it has never been as as fervorously argued in the Portuguese case as in the Spanish case. The Leyenda Negra is clearly inspired by uh, things such as the Spanish Inquisition and um, Portuguese history, Portuguese imperial history has has never been exposed to the same extent as Spanish and Spanish imperial history to this legend or myth, if you want. This being said, uh, two of the uh, foundational historiographical works of British scholarship on the Portuguese empire, empire uh, written in the late 19th century, and these are Frederick Charles Danvers' The Portuguese in India, Being a History of the Rise and Decline of the Eastern Empire, and also Richard Whiteway's The Rise of Portuguese Power in India, both written in the 1890s. Both works clearly carry the idea that the Portuguese are deeply Catholic, uh, deeply zealous and often deeply irrational in their approach uh, to empire, uh, I'm just going to quote uh, a sentence from Richard Whiteways, *The Rise of Portuguese Power in India*. "Quote: Whatever the Portuguese were in Europe, once in the East, there was nothing to improve their character or soften their defects." End of quote. So this this was a kind of this was <laughs> this is the kind of uh, intellectual atmosphere of course of the 1890s where Britain was uh, a, a direct rival of uh, the Portuguese in Africa. In the scramble for Africa Britain confronted the Portuguese in southern Africa. Uh, Britain confronted Portuguese plans to join its two colonies, Angola and Mozambique, which of course went um, against the plan of uh, connecting the Cape to Cairo uh, and it is in that specific uh, moment that British historians pick up on the Leyenda Negra theme and apply it to Portuguese imperial history. Um, throughout the 20th century, this has not been particularly virulent. However, um, you do get little reminiscences of. Uh, this way of arguing, for example, in the work of an Australian historian, um, an excellent Australian historian, Michael N. Pearson, who's written on um, the Indian Ocean and the Portuguese in the Indian Ocean. Some South Asian historians um, in, in India and in Sri Lanka, for example, even today, uh, will argue that the Portuguese were particularly irrational and particularly religiously intolerant in their approach to Asian populations, um, and that clearly has had an impact on the way people have written and have read Portuguese history in this region. I would like to add something here, and this is this is quite important. Uh, there is a long tradition within Iberian history, within within Iberian historiography, within Iberian societies, both in Spain and in Portugal. There has been a strong anti clerical tradition in the historiography of these countries within these countries, so it doesn't take, you don't have to be uh, british or uh, from northern Europe to be critical of the religious zeal that was to some extent built into the Portuguese and Spanish political system in the early modern period. Portuguese and Spanish historians since the nineteenth uh, century have been very active themselves in criticizing uh, their own history and, of course, the stance and the importance of the church in Iberian history. Now, if you ask me about historical truth, that, of course, is is, uh, the crux of the question. I would say that, as most legends, there is some truth in it. Clearly, if you compare, for example, um, Portuguese expansion in South India in Sri Lanka with Dutch expansion in the same region. A little later, you will see that there is much more emphasis on religious conversion in the Portuguese case than there is in the Dutch case. That is clear. However, what I also would encourage everyone to think about is what exactly are we comparing here, we are comparing two very different things. In fact, we to to we, we might even be comparing apples and pears. Uh, we have a crown led um, state building em- enterprise in the Portuguese case that starts around 1500 in Asia. We have um, a commercial um, project in the Dutch case that starts 100 years later. We are not always talking about the same places, there's a chronological gap, there are different kinds of agents involved in these two projects. So, any comparison that essentializes and says the Portuguese, like the Spanish, were religious zealots, others, such as the English and the Dutch, were not is, whilst it's true to some extent, also missing the point. Uh, And I think as as historians, we really need to go beyond that. Um, The the Inquisition is a fact. For example, um, in the Portuguese Empire, we have a tribunal of the um, Inquisition in Goa, which discussed thousands of cases of um, heterodoxy of people not uh, not behaving as good good Christians, although they were um, formally converts. Uh, so a lot of that was going on, of course. But I think overall these were forces that were uh, locally. F- focused on Goa, for example, if you were in Sri Lanka, the, the, the chances that you would be taken to Goa for a court case uh, with the Inquisition were relatively small, I have to say. Thank you.
0: You note that the the most remarkable aspect of Portuguese diplomacy is its variety of goals and its diversity of means. What do you mean by this?
1: What I mean by a variety of goals is that there is no single plan. There is no grand imperial strategy, um, as there probably isn't in the Spanish case and and in very few other imperial projects indeed. There are a number of different groups in Portuguese society in the f- late 15th century. And as Portuguese society expands geographically, this variety is going to be exasperated. There is going to be an explosion of of groups of interests, if you want, who will have very different projects, strategies, tactics in their approach to uh, the societies uh, they were neighboring. So in their approach to negotiation, there would necessarily be various different goals. By variety of means, I mean something that is closely connected with, with this, and that is there is no unified diplomatic apparatus. There is no single handbook for diplomacy how to conduct negotiations there are no clear royal orders that would apply across the portuguese possessions from brazil through africa to asia Um, so we have a great variety of contexts of situations to which the portuguese respond in many different ways
0: now you alluded briefly in an earlier question to the papal bulls, to what extent were Portuguese negotiations and actions in Asia informed by the papal bulls that they had agreed with the pope?
1: So papal bulls were important documents in the history of both uh, the Spanish and the Portuguese empires in that they created the, let's say, ideological bedrock upon which empire building could happen. Um, the most important papal bulls are 15th century documents, and they basically, uh, in a time of Portuguese-Castilian rivalry, established what these two countries could do, where they would be going, and on what grounds they would be waging war, inflicting violence upon uh, people um, outside of Europe. Um, obviously, religion is going to be at the core of these documents um, to Expand is justifiable if you do it in the name of the Christian religion, the Catholic faith. I don't think the papal bulls had a very direct, explicit impact on the way negotiations were conducted, but I do think they were quite important in giving, uh, uh, in establishing a sort of fundamental attitude of, we are here legitimately. We are setting a foot on African land, on Asian land, with the, bap- the backing, the ideological bap- backing of the most important arbitrating instance uh, in international politics in the 15th, 16th century, which is the Vatican. Um, we need to imagine a world here without the United Nations, without a Security Council. But a world that is starting to become interconnected in ways that make it morally and ethically desirable to have some sort of of superior instance that is going to tell us we can go this way, we can go that way, we we are allowed to do certain things, we are allowed to do to wage just wars against infidels, for example, um, or to negotiate the vassalatic submission of a king in Africa or in Asia to the Portuguese uh, crown, the papal bulls really provide the legitimacy if you want the, the a certain comfort uh, to the Portuguese to tell them that they can actually do this legitimately. This is very important because in the world of, of diplomacy at large, the Portuguese are, of course, negotiating with sovereigns, rulers across Africa and Asia, but they also have to report back to their fellow um, rulers in Europe to some extent. Uh, whenever something is happening in Africa and Asia of some importance, it's going to be talked about in uh, Europe. And as French and English and Netherlandish um, ambitions for overseas expansion begin to grow in the 16th century, the Portuguese and the Spanish uh, resort to the papal bulls to say, hold on, this is our uh, domain of political action. This is what has been agreed with the highest authority to be the Vatican um, that can be done. And English ships, French ships have nothing have have nothing to do in the South Atlantic, for example.
0: How did the negotiative techniques or the philosophy of diplomacy in in of the Portuguese change and adapt according to their varying interests in Africa, Asia, and Brazil? Um, to what degree was it influenced by their ability to uh, inflict violence on
1: native populations? So, I think the first part of the question is what we are going to be covering. Um, in subsequent questions mostly. uh, Let me put some emphasis on the second part of the question. Um, Violence and the ability to inflict violence is of course key here. I want to emphasize this because I really don't want a misunderstanding to arise here around the way I conceptualize diplomacy. Um, Diplomacy is not meant here, historiographically, uh, to be a an alternative to a more violence-centered approach to military, through military history, political history. Violence was absolutely key uh, for the functioning of diplomacy across uh, Europe, across the Indian Ocean world around 1500. What makes diplomacy work is the fact that you know that there is a possibility of violence. This is a shared common ground. Um, It's very important to acknowledge this, not in order to whitewash European activities in Asia by any means. It's important to acknowledge this because we are trying to understand how the Portuguese could establish themselves, how the Portuguese were able to speak to Asian societies and vice versa, how Asian rulers could communicate with the Portuguese, how diplomacy could actually take off. In a world where there was often not even a shared language, a shared language such as Portuguese or Latin or uh, Sanskrit or whatever it would be. So there needed to be certain fundamental concepts um, and violence was, was one of them. Um, if you negotiate, you are negotiating because you, want, you wish to avoid the deployment of further violence military violence, um, physical violence of various sorts. Um, This was absolutely crucial to the functioning of the system. In fact, the importance of violence is um, frequently alluded to in 16th century texts. For example, the Portuguese intellectual Lopo Fernandes de Castaneda, a man of of laws, uh, wrote that kings in Asia had subjected themselves, they had have, had submitted themselves to uh, the umbrella of Portuguese rule, some because they were simply conquered, others because they were fearing the possibility of being conquered. So this is, of course, the stick in the carrot and stick um, approach to diplomacy and others by um, through their free will, uh, which is, of course, very discussable. There is always a reason for uh, taking such an option. Now, coming back to the first part of your question, let me just emphasize this. Um, Not all diplomacy is directed at establishing clear submission of one king, one ruler to the other, uh, which might have um, been the case very often in this quote that I just mentioned. The the author was telling us, us about Asian kings, African kings who accepted the suzerainty, the symbolic superiority of the Portuguese crown. And we speak here of relationships of vassalage, vassalaging. Um, But there was also the possibility of establishing relations that were completely between equals. Um, The overarching concept at play here is amizade that is friendship. The friendship of kings was a distinct possibility uh, whenever there was a feeling that the ability of both sides to inflict violence upon each other was roughly balanced, roughly equal, in which case it was in the interest of both parties to accept the other as a friend, as something standing roughly at the same level. What is the main difference in practice? Well, the main difference is that whilst in both cases you are talking to each other negotiating um trying to keep things going um without actually deploying violence in the case of friendship uh, nothing else really has to happen to, whereas in the case of vassalage the vassal king will have to pay tribute to his superior and that tribute can be a it can be symbolic it can also be take the form of very heavy payments, cash, goods, uh, precious stones, elephants, whatever was agreed.
0: Um, Now, when it came to Asia, of course, the Crown wasn't alone in attempting to establish diplomatic relations with local rulers with a view to pursuing trade. Uh, Several private Portuguese enterprises were in direct competition with the king and with each other in trying to gain a commercial foothold in places like Goa and Bengal. Can you outline some of the competi- some of the complications or conflicts that might have arisen because of this competition
1: okay, so this is a key point, of course. the Portuguese Empire in Asia does not respond to a single grand strategy it um, does not um, happen as a monolithic enterprise. Um, there is a great variety of of goals involved and also a great variety of opportunities arising for different kinds of people who decide to go from Portugal to Asia. Um, And of course, um, just an an evident little detail of the story, the, the king, of course, never travels to Asia. The king is never able to be there in person. And we're talking about very significant distances in the 16th century to dispatch orders to dispatch a ship from Lisbon to Goa, uh, would take at least six to nine months. It could it could take even longer than that. Um, if you wanted to dispatch orders from Lisbon to say Macau, uh, they might take up to three years to arrive. And uh, the the response uh, response letters could take another three years to actually make their way back to Lisbon. So, the crown was hugely overstretched uh, in terms of. Um, keeping a grip on all the things that were going on in um, the East. In terms of diplomacy, it's important to emphasize how pre-modern diplomacy in general, also in Europe, is not a crown monopoly. Uh, Within Europe in the 15th, 16th centuries, uh, whilst uh, rulers, kings and queens, are trying to build up a monopoly on foreign relations, foreign diplomacy, negotiations, um, it's still very often the case that archbishops or other agents of European politics have their own diplomatic processes, their own diplomatic activities. Um, So we are generally talking about a period where crown authority is in the process of being consolidated. um, And this applies to the Portuguese and the Portuguese empire as it applies to any other uh, polity in early modern Europe. Now in Asia, of course, there are, there's a great variety of of regional contexts within which the Portuguese are going to operate in the 16th centuries. Um, you have uh, a number of different political systems even, and of course political realities, polities on the ground. Um, even within one entity, such as, for example, uh, the Mughal Empire, you will have local governors or in the south of China, you will have authorities who do not necessarily respond directly to orders from the center. So um, to the fuzziness, if you will want, on the Portuguese side, you have to add some indefinition on the Asian side, Um there is no clearly established diplomatic system on the Asian side either. Um, So that generates an added layer of complexity and of regional or local diversity of approaches, of events, of ways of proceeding. Most fascinatingly to me, uh, within the Portuguese empire, within the Portuguese expansionist process, you have a number of different groups of interest. Now, this is something that has been emphasized uh, and brought to the fore by a Portuguese historian who was particularly active in the 80s and 90s, Luís Filipe Tomás, who worked out a theory uh, in which he contrasts two main groups of interest in the Portuguese Empire in Asia. Um, He calls them the commercialists on one side and the militarists on the other side. Commercialists were people interested in free trade, to put it bluntly, whilst the militarists or the centralists uh, were interested in keeping crown control and building up crown control over trading activities. Um, Now this was a big issue in the sense that as the Portuguese built up their capabilities in Asia, they needed to decide how much of that activity was going to be controlled centrally, and how much of it was going to be left to individual or to trading groups um, to handle. Now, Tomáš's theory has been attacked um, by some who argue that it draws attention away from the inherent violence of the system by emphasizing internal uh, rivalries. How does this argument work? Basically, what some historians have been saying is that by emphasizing the internal rivalries of the Portuguese uh, system, we are de-emphasizing the violence that the Portuguese inflicted as a collective on Asian and African populations. Um, I think there is a grain of truth in this criticism, but I think um, the criticism is also slightly misleading in that Tomas' theory makes most sense as an analytical tool. I have to say personally, I think that um, there also have been some very blunt and uncritical applications of Tomas' theory as if there had been two parties uh almost two political parties, uh, one interested in free trade, the other interested in royal control, um, permanently fighting each other along uh, a very clear boundary, um, which was not the case. I think these two concepts really make sense analytically for us as historians to put some order in the chaos of the historical materials. Each and every moment in history, some people might have more of an interest in conducting trade freely uh, than others, but within a year or two, the situation might change, and suddenly those same people might actually become interested in having the support of the crown for their navigational enterprises, for the defense of a coastal um, um, foothold outpost. Um, So these these things are really very fluid in the 16th century. These rivalries or these tensions become really interesting in the field of diplomacy because um, occasionally, in fact, I would go up to the point of of saying quite pervasively you would have rivalries between not just uh, different groups, but also the representatives of these different groups in negotiations with local societies, local rulers in African Asia. In other words, a crown representative might conduct negotiations with a ruler in South India in a different way from the representative of a private trading group or of a local Portuguese captain of a local fortress who had his own personal interests in conducting trade in the region.
0: And in fact, the agents of the Portuguese crown themselves also worked at times to undermine the king's interest, didn't they?
1: That's right. One of the most interesting cases is Francisco de Almeida, the first viceroy um, of, of, of India, of uh, the Portuguese empire in Asia, which which at the time was beginning to be called Estado da India. Francisco de Almeida was a a a member of the high nobility. Um, He was well connected at court. However, he was not particularly close to the king, Manuel I. Manuel I is um, the king whom Louis-Philippe Tomas has characterized as almost obsessed with a political, military, and religious project in Asia. According to Tomas, Manuel I had this plan to uh, conduct a crusade in the Holy Land to retake the Holy Land, but not by coming through the Mediterranean, and rather by coming uh, through the Red Sea. Um, according to Tomás, this strategic plan played a major role in the way Manuel I envisaged Portuguese expansion in the East as almost as a stepping stone to the reconquest of the Holy Land. Um, it's a controversial theory because it's not clear to wh- to what extent this theory served as more than a sort of a, an ideological backdrop to the process as a, a means by which the king could consolidate his own personal interests in controlling Portuguese activities in Asia, in having a plan, a strategy in order to trump any other arguments. I think even then it's, it's a very important element to acknowledge that the king could mobilize a certain political project that not everyone would be in agreement with. Now, uh, Francisco Almeida, in particular is known to have been close to a number of people who were interested in free trade rather than than crown-controlled trade. Uh, And indeed, who were often interested in a more, let's say, more pragmatic approach to being in the East rather than deploying military force um, um, in order to um, support um, the project of expansion. Um, Francisco de Almeida was closely connected to a group of traders who established themselves in the South Indian Emporium of Cochin, the Kingdom of Cochin. And he had a personal interest or took a personal interest in um, the trade surrounding this group, the trade the trading network, let's say, connecting Cochin to a number of places around it. Um, he was actually close to people who were also connected with the Vasco da Gama's family, the, the Gama family. And there has been a bit of emphasis on this in Portuguese historiography. Uh, we now speak of the group of Cochin as an important commercial but also political force in the Portuguese empire in its very early years. So just to give you an example, um, Manuel I dispatched an agent, actually a commercial agent if you want, um, a feitor um, called Peru Fernandes Tinoco to conduct some negotiations and to purchase precious stones in the South Indian empire of Vijayanagar. Um, which was the most powerful, most important polity in South India in the early 1500s. And the Portuguese monarch wished to m- entertain good relations with um, the rulers of Vijayanagar. Now, Francisco de Almeida was, of course, expected as the viceroy, as the direct representative of the Portuguese crown in the East. In fact, as the alter ego of the Portuguese monarch to support the Portuguese monarch's own agent, Tinoco. And yet he didn't. Um, This is a very clear instance of how um, an official, a high official of the Portuguese crown, the actual Viceroy himself, did not support his own monarch's uh, interests and rather uh, dispatched other people whom he thought he trusted more and with whom he of course hoped to consolidate his own and his own friends' um, interests in the south of India.
0: Um, do you think the Crown was aware at all of these underhanded maneuvers?
1: Yes, absolutely. It was uh, painfully aware, acutely aware. And in fact, um, when you look at the nominations of uh, the, the the governors, um, that was one of the moments where political tensions at the court in Lisbon really really rose uh, and where deals had to be made and compromises had to be made. Now as I mentioned, uh, both Vasco da Gama and uh, Francisco de Almeida, who took two of the key figures in the early years, were not particularly close to uh, Manuel I, the monarch. Uh, This is clearly the result of a compromising of, of a process of negotiation within the Portuguese court to reach some sort of compromise, um, the successor of uh, Francisco de Almeida, Afonso de Albuquerque, in contrast, is clearly the dream candidate of the Portuguese crown of Manuel I himself. Um, but he became a governor in a very specific, um, in under very specific circumstances. Um, it was by no means a fact of life, it was by no means guaranteed for the king that he could dispatch and that he could maintain a grip over people as he would ideally have wished to. So again, distance is a key aspect here. When it takes about two years for orders to go to India and come back, uh, you, you, as someone who is trying to to administer, to rule over an empire, you are necessarily very aware of the impossibility of doing things without compromising.
0: I'm particularly interested in a rather colourful envoy uh, named Cristóbal uh that you've written about. What can you tell us about him?
1: So this is a particularly interesting and almost hilarious example of intra-Portuguese, of rivalries within the realm of Portuguese expansion that became visible in the field of diplomacy. Um, so we're in 1521 here and the Portuguese um, authorities would ideally like to establish a trading deal in Bengal. Um, the then governor, Diogo the de Siqueira, who was fairly close to Manuel I, um, dispatched uh, an, o- an official envoy from Goa to the Bengal capital, uh, Gore. Um, and this envoy, in Antonio de Brito, uh, was carrying official letters he had Um, official gifts from the Portuguese crown, um, the governor in Goa, to um, the sultan, Nasiruddin Nasrud Shah. Um, And there was clearly everything in place for negotiations to be conducted successfully. Now, when the official diplomatic mission, the official group of diplomats, arrived in the region of Bengal in 1521, they were in for a bad surprise. In fact, another diplomatic initiative was already on the way. Now, this one had been launched not by the Portuguese authorities, but by uh, a man called Rafael Perustrello, who had established commercial interests in the region. You might call him a trading tycoon or an oligarch. Um, He was a very rich, influential, fairly powerful and very ambitious man, Uh, conducting trade in the Bengal, in the Bay of Bengal um, region, and he had himself taken the initiative at the same time, um, and this is probably not a coincidence, to send his own envoy to Gore um, to prevent the authorities in Goa to to reach their own deal. Um, This is quite blunt, if you want. I mean, just imagine here are the forces of the official empire uh, suddenly being confronted with a diplomatic initiative launched by a private person who just happened to be active in that region. Um, Christophe was the band chosen by this tycoon Peristrelu to negotiate um, with the Bengal, uh, with the authorities of what we call Bengal. And, um, in fact, he de- he deployed uh, some fairly blunt tactics to discredit the official envoys of the Portuguese governor. Um, he he seems to have been quite a flamboyant personality, uh, to be honest. Um, he claimed to be a son of the Portuguese governor himself. Um, he paid substantial bribes to be uh, seen before the official envoys. Um, he refused to stay on the one roof with the official envoys, and he even went uh, to the point of claiming that he had converted to islam um and that he would not be willing to 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 share a house with uh people who were catholics um so clearly he he went quite far in his uh in in the deployment of subterfuges of lies of uh, all sorts of Um, not very honourable tactics. Eventually the situation was cleared but the accounts of these two rivaling missions in Bengal in 1521 are uh, quite complex uh, incredibly exciting to read through actually. Um, You really get a sense of the action going on on the ground between these two rivals um, trying to conduct negotiations, being the first to obtain the right to import export certain goods, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, this is a very good example of the of the wider inconsistencies in uh, Portuguese expansion and even within the Portuguese Empire. How did the
0: earliest visitors to Asia, such as Vasco da Gama, who you spoke about earlier, uh, begin the process of establishing diplomatic relations with local rulers, considering the fact that they had almost no template from which they could work? What kind of problems did they
1: face? They faced lots of problems. Um, in a in a sense, a Portuguese diplomacy in Asia really um, got rolling uh, on through a trial and error process. Vasco da Gama lacked the knowledge um, to fully understand how politics um, worked in the south of India, what exactly the role of Calicut and the king of Calicut was in the political landscape of South India. Um, his mindset was probably not helpful in that, as we said earlier, the idea of, of a, of a uni- universal mandate, um, the idea established sanctioned, formalized with the Treaty of Tordesillas, that the Portuguese were in a sense legitimately engaging in a process of expansion where they could subject rulers in Africa and Asia um, into vassalage. That mindset certainly did not help when Vasco Gama approached a king who himself was, was paramount in, in South India and who was politically superior to a number of other kings around him. And we expected at least um, an attitude of respect uh, to begin conversations. Um, Vasco da Gama also lacked the proper means to conduct uh, diplomacy in Calicut. By this I mean most most blatantly a lack of appropriate diplomatic gifts. Diplomatic gifts were absolutely essential to the uh, functioning of diplomacy in in Asia. Um, Perhaps this could be said about any place in the world, but in Asia, in particular, the Portuguese needed to bring to the table, uh, even even just to get negotiations rolling, even just to start negotiations. Uh, it was very important to have gifts at hand. Uh, gifts would express the seriousness of your intent, your respectability, um, having precious, valuable gifts that would be valuable not just to yourself but also to your counterpart would be a sign of respect, a sign of respectability. Um, And that was absolutely key to actually getting into negotiations with a king such as the king of Calicut. And Vasco da Gama did not have the appropriate gifts. Um, So really, his mission was fraught um, from the beginning. He, He was, in a sense... Not going to get much out of these early negotiations um, anyway, and his his own personal character does not seem to have helped either. It is mentioned in it is mentioned in the chronicles, um, which are based on uh, coeval uh, accounts, that he he did not react well personally. He got angry at times. He got uh, melancholic. Um, in the sense of of very hesitant at at moments. It wasn't very clear to him what exactly he was doing. And because it was not clear to him what exactly he was trying to achieve, I think on the other side, it was also not very clear what these people actually wanted. One of the misunderstandings that arose in those early negotiations between the Portuguese and the authorities in Calicut uh, apparently had to do with paying taxes, which uh, seems... Uh, a fairly uh, prosaic problem, uh, very familiar to us today. But uh, basically, the Portuguese were not willing to pay the taxes that would typically be be paid uh, for anyone to trade. Uh, they were expecting a special deal even before um, negotiations really could get underway. So, a number of things seem to have gone wrong there in the beginning, and it took the Portuguese some time to actually to learn to behave diplomatically, to learn, to uh, prepare themselves for diplomatic missions uh, appropriately in the early 1500s. So because
0: the Portuguese set out to explore with a clear universal mandate of conquest, as you put it, um, is there any sense that they were frustrated by the fact that to make inroads in places like Asia, they had to engage in, in negotiation diplomacy instead
1: of just taking what they wanted through force? Yes, absolutely. It was uh, naturally very frustrating um, if you really went into things with a mindset of, of conquista. It, it's it's hard to say to what extent anyone really expected Asia to lay open, to, to be there for the taking. It's hard to say to what extent anyone really expected Asia to be conquerable uh, at all um, in the early 1500s. But um, c- clearly for some of the early agents of the Portuguese crown, it was a bit perhaps surprising, a bit unexpected to be confronted with such vigorous political apparatuses, with such uh, well-structured, prosperous polities um, where clearly the Portuguese could not do whatever they wanted. Um, I think very quickly this reality became a fact of life. It was just the way things were in many parts of Asia. Um, and this then gave rise to basically yet another layer of opportunities. Um, you would go to Asia to pursue opportunities in trade, um, to pursue opportunities in royal administration or in the military or in a religious order. Or indeed, um, you you might get into um negotiating activities you might become a diplomatic specialist Uh, you might develop certain skills of negotiation of intercultural negotiation that could be become precious for both sides involved Um, and um, very soon you get a whole body of people who develop capabilities in the in the diplomatic field uh, and who can live with these realities very well.
0: So we talked about Vasco da Gama and his inexperience, but clearly they got better at this, didn't they? Um, What can you tell us about the increasingly sophisticated negotiative techniques uh, developed under the leadership of Afonso de Albuquerque, who was appointed to governor of India um, in
1: 1509? So the process of apprenticeship is a very impressive one. Indeed, as you say, the Portuguese quickly learned how to behave diplomatically in Asia. Uh, from the early failures of Vasco da Gama, um, we see a quick uh, development to a much more sustainable, much more successful way of engaging in diplomatic negotiations with African and Asian sovereigns. Afonso de Albuquerque is a remarkable character in the story. Um, he got familiarized with the Indian Ocean world uh, from as early as 1503. Um, he knew the region uh, well he was both a soldier and a courtier um he had in portugal been active at the portuguese court um he knew how to behave in a courtly environment he was also a, a, a man of arms he was a respected uh, military leader he was able to fight himself as was was expected at the time of a military leader. And he was a man relatively close to Manuel I. Now, some of the early activities of Afonso de Albuquerque in the Indian Ocean as a commander, not yet a governor, um, for example, in 1507, were of an extreme violence. And there's um, there's no way that we can talk this away. Um, the activities of uh, Afonso de Albuquerque in southern Arabia in the island of Socotra and especially along the coast of Oman in uh, 1507 were extremely violent. He waged war indiscriminately against civil populations in in these various places. Um, He went on to um, subject Hormuz into uh, vassalage, the king of Hormuz into vassalage, when Afonso de Albuquerque became a governor in 1509, um, he still had uh, some of that military impulse in him. Uh, he went on to conquer Goa in 1510. Um, he also went on to conquer Malacca in 1511. But I think in those years, 1509, 10, 11, he very quickly realized that military might alone was not enough. Uh, Goa, for example, had to be conquered twice. Um, it fell into Portuguese hands for the first time in early 1510 and then had to be conquered again later that same year. And I think Afonso de Albuquerque realized how important it was that he had local allies, that he could um, rely on local forces, um, plus that he could quickly consolidate whatever military gains were made diplomatically. So once you conquer a place, in order to keep that place, that's where you need diplomacy. And that's where he he understood that he had to learn very quickly. Um, just a f- some months really after the second conquest of Goa in 1511, um, Afonso de Albuquerque goes to conquer Malacca, Malacca in the Straits of Malacca, not very far from where Singapore is today. This is obviously a key uh, strategic port uh, connecting um, the waters of the Indian Ocean with the South China Sea. It was a major port, perhaps not um, as big as some historians have suggested, but certainly one of the biggest and most important and richest ports uh, in Asia. Albuquerque coveted this port for strategic reasons. He also knew that it would yield um, a lot of revenue for the Portuguese crown. But in order to conquer it, even before he actually attacked, he started to negotiate with the members of various uh, local communities in Malacca in order to make sure that once the Portuguese conquered uh, this port, they would have local support. So diplomacy came into the picture as a part of the process of conquest. Once the Portuguese held Malacca, they had to further develop their diplomatic capabilities. And this basically happened almost inevitably uh, in 1511-12. The first reason was that the Sultan of Malacca actually continued to rule uh, from another place nearby. So the legitimacy of, of the Portuguese lords of Malacca was was in question. And in order to establish that legitimacy, the Portuguese had to negotiate with um, the surrounding uh, greater polities that uh, would then accept Malacca um, to be, to have fallen into Portuguese hands and would accept trade to be conducted through this port um, anyway. Um, Interestingly also, um, and this happens both in Malacca and uh, in Hormuz, when Hormuz is uh, definitively conquered in 1515, also by Albuquerque. Because this is a two-way process, it's not just the Portuguese who are dispatching embassies to various polities around these ports, it's also that the people ruling uh, over various kingdoms around these ports dispatch their envoys to Malacca, to Hormuz, to see what's going on, to see to what extent they can work together with the Portuguese as the new uh, lords of these ports. And all of this is diplomacy. All of this is very um, intensive. It often happens in the courte durée. So it's it's, it's stuff that's happening uh, within weeks, months after the conquest. And I think Albuquerque was the right man in the right place. He, he sensed, he understood the importance of conducting diplomacy with appropriate means. As a courtier, he had the mindset to understand how important it was to follow certain formalities, to accept certain uh, habits of representation in Asian diplomacy, to, to, to play the game along the rules that were established long before the Portuguese arrived. Can you tell me about the importance of perceived
0: cultural commonalities between the Portuguese and their Asian counterparts in pursuing and establishing diplomatic relations?
1: Yes this is a very important point albeit one that we are only just starting to understand fully i think um, much of the historiography took it for granted that we are talking about the encounter of the portuguese with the indians the sri lankans the chinese and it's it's taken a curiously long time for historians to realize that what something that is pretty obvious, really. And that is that when we're talking about these diplomatic encounters, which consolidated, made Portuguese presence in the region sustainable politically, uh, militarily, commercially, during these, these encounters occurred in courtly environments. Um, In fact, they are courtly encounters uh, between people who within each of their societies, within Portuguese society, Indian society, uh, Sri Lankan, um, Chinese, Japanese society, uh, they were the elites. They were the courtly elites. Um, and they, they were meeting people of their own kind, if you want. So whilst we have a, a, an intercultural encounter here between people from very, very different cultures, uh, speaking mutually unintelligible languages, of course, uh, trying to find Um, ways across those cultural uh, linguistic boundaries, socially speaking, we have uh, people who share a lot, uh, who share a common ground, who share a certain, um, who share a a status in their uh, societies. Uh, We are talking about Portuguese nobles encountering South Asian or East Asian nobles, um, or or people, let's say, who who, who can be read as nobles. The commonalities here are either real or perceived, uh, but in any case, they are extremely important, I think. Um, I think just the the sheer fact that you are facing someone who you know has a comparable status to the the status that you have at home uh, is is very important. you know you are dealing with someone who is respectable, who, is, who has a certain power, a certain influence in society, who has uh, the material means to conduct a life of, in, of comfort, of material sophistication. Um, and so you can engage in conversations um, without having to break uh, through layer after layer after layer of intercultural uh, misunderstanding. You know that um, by dressing in a certain way, you are doing something that your counterpart has also been doing uh, that morning, uh, making an effort to impress, making an effort to put on the best clothes. Um, You may be sitting down together for a game of chess. For example, you assume that there are certain things that the other knows already. Um, Commensality, of course, is is very important. People sitting down at the same table to consume food and drink, the the ability to control the movements of your own body, uh, which is which is key to identifying elite behavior across European and Asian societies. Um, a shared love for hunting, for example, uh, could provide uh, much needed common ground between um, a foreign diplomat and an Asian ruler, for example, uh, to just get the conversation going. Uh, Yes, we have been to the hunt together. Yes, uh, we we share this um, love for the the royal hunt, which is in in fact a Eurasian phenomenon. I think these aspects are really important. I also think there is something that we don't quite understand yet, and that has to do with material culture, um, the way the Portuguese perceived and, and read the places where negotiations were conducted across Asia, and here I think um, the Islamic world, the Islamicate world, the the palatial environments that the Portuguese encountered in North India, um, in the Middle East, of course, um, provided a certain a certain familiarity, just in terms of architectural structure, urban structure, the way space functions, the way cities have a center, uh, certain arteries, um, the way palaces are built. Um, there, there seems to be, it seems to be possible to argue that the Portuguese recognized Islamic architecture as a relatively familiar environment, as opposed to, for example, Hindu architecture, which it, it, took, it took them t- some time to understand, to read it uh, properly. Really, we are only just beginning to understand um how these commonalities worked, and the the challenge is, of course, in terms of documents, how do you actually identify a moment where a Portuguese envoy sees uh the foreign the other through a lens of familiarity? You can identify this through certain words that are used uh through comparisons that are made. Uh, But I think we're still a long way from fully understanding how exactly these things worked.
0: The complexity of Asia's political and cultural landscape must have made Portuguese diplomatic efforts a fairly difficult and multifaceted affair as they moved uh, further along the coastlines and into the continent of of Asia during the 16th century. Did they manage to maintain a a relatively coherent set of diplomatic policies or did it become a, a cumbersome affair for them?
1: I think they they the the answer is yes and no in that um, there was a great variety of approaches uh, and inevitably the Portuguese um, got caught up in many very different court cultures. So I have just emphasized uh, commonality, but this is not to to suggest that there were not constant challenges whenever you went as a Diplomat as a diplomatic agent to a new place um, that that could arise at any moment. Um, in fact, one of the things that I've I, I've argued in the past is that, interestingly, um, the Portuguese faced a relatively flexible diplomatic culture in most of the places they went to in coastal India, coastal Sri Lanka, um, probably some other places further east, um, close to the sea, uh, where diplomatic culture was not as rigid and as codified as in some of the great mainland empires, for example, the Mughal Empire, or probably worse than all, um, China. Um, To conduct negotiations in a place like Cannanore in the south of India or Kote Colombo in the southwest of Sri Lanka was one thing. To conduct diplomatic negotiations in Beijing was a completely different thing. Uh, the kind of challenges that could arise was, was very different. Uh, in general, in the coastal ports, um, you get a sense from the documents that both parties, both sides were really trying to find solutions pragmatically. Um, often, negotiations really only had to do with, with trade, um, sometimes uh, taxation. Um, but even if they had to do with more political aspects, for example, the vassalage of the monarch of Cote in southwestern Sri Lanka um, to the Portuguese crown, you, you always get the sense that people on both sides are basically trying to work out a deal that they both basically trying to reach a deal. They are basically trying to reach agreements and to make things work. Now when the Portuguese or Portuguese diplomatic agents arrive in places like, like Agra or Beijing, um, things would often be more, diff- more complicated. Um, on the one hand you have, uh, often very, very strictly formalized codes of conduct. Um, and if anyone went against them, um, the consequences could be very serious. Um, there were often restrictions on on the movement of the diplomat's body, on um, the way you approached uh, the ruler, the way you could or could not have physical contact or even eye contact with uh, an Asian ruler. So there were a number of pitfalls um, potentially that, in fact, Occasionally, led to the demise of diplomats. They might actually end up um, imprisoned or even killed. Um, now, you also asked whether this was a cumbersome affair, and I think um, the answer to that is, in a sense, well, if we want to see the cup half full, as I think most people at the time did, it was that the answer would be no. It was just a fact of life that to sustain your presence in these various, very different parts of Africa and Asia, you had to negotiate in different languages according to different rules. Um, and soon this was seen as an opportunity for, for a number of people who would specialize in conducting negotiations in certain places or who would um, um, simply accumulate a certain experience that would allow them to switch between different modes of negotiation quite quite effectively, if you want.
0: Who were some of the main protagonists in the mid to late 16th century?
1: There were no professional diplomats in the current sense of the word. Resident ambassadors were extremely rare. Um, Some Jesuits um, stayed at the Mughal court as practically permanent residential ambassadors, if you want, for some time. Uh, But in general, there was no professionalization of the, the diplomatic class now, I just mentioned that some people specialized or developed skills in conducting um, negotiations, um, but they would typically al- always be people who also did other things in life. They might be military officers, they might be administrators, they might be traders or uh, missionaries indeed, and be deployed at one point or another on a diplomatic mission. Um, so. I take the meaning of diplomacy quite widely and also the meaning of the diplomat quite widely here. Um, In a sense, the person standing at the top of the diplomatic hierarchy in the Portuguese empire in Asia is the viceroy or governor himself, who is an alter ego of the Portuguese monarch and who is, in a sense, by default, capable of conducting negotiations in the name of the Portuguese crown, because in a sense, he is the king himself in in the East. Um, But there's a wide spectrum um, of diplomatic agents, including um, high-ranking nobles, as I mentioned. But it's very difficult to draw a line of where exactly the category of diplomacy, diplomatic agents should then end. As we go down the social ladder, we encounter members of the middle or lower nobility uh who happen to go on missions um here and there we encounter religious missionaries who are deployed as diplomats um we encounter in feed, in fact some commoners um and some recent converts to christianism or even some people of other religions who are made to carry letters to talk to court offices at distant places. Um, These men might be Jews. uh, They might be Brahmins um, who are often used in Sri Lanka and South India to carry letters, for example. Um, They they might be Armenians. So there's a whole range of diplomatic agents. uh, And we're really only starting to understand the full spectrum of people who make diplomacy work. At this time, so the kingdoms of Spain
0: and Portugal were united under Philip II of Spain in 1580. Did Portuguese approaches to negotiation and diplomacy change after the Iberian Union?
1: There's no simple answer to this question. Uh, We still know relatively little actually about the transition to um, Philippine rule, if you want, to to Habsburg rule in the Portuguese Empire. The two empires, the Portuguese and the Spanish Empire, remained formally separate even after the Union of Crowns. When Philip II became um, the king of Portugal in 1580, 81, really, um, he became the king of an independent realm that remained legally, politically, formally separate from the Spanish Empire. One of the big questions that I think historians have to answer there is whether there was some sort of Spanish influence uh, starting in the 1580s on the way politics were conducted and diplomacy was conducted by the Portuguese in Asia. In terms of personnel, in terms of of human resources, the Portuguese Empire was not deeply permeated by agents of the Spanish uh, crown. Um, so there is, if there was any any influence, if you want, any Castilian influence on the way the Portuguese acted in Asia, we would we would still be a far away from understanding the mechanisms of transmission. Now I have argued um, with regard to uh, Sri Lanka that a number of changes occurred in the 1580s to 90s. Some of these changes can be read as signs of a Castilian influence, but reading them as signs of Castilian influence would be to simplify and really to misunderstand the basic processes that were going on. Let me um, explain this in a little more detail. So Sri Lanka was, for much of the 16th century, a place where the Portuguese exerted power and influence through diplomacy in the first place. Um, A number of Sri Lankan monarchs wished to be uh, vassals of the Portuguese crown throughout the 16th century. The Portuguese managed these situations uh, diplomatically, at times militarily, um, and benefited from this uh, greatly in terms of commerce, in terms of purchasing um, things such as cinnamon below market price. So there was a fairly well-established uh, system, a status quo, if you want, where a number of Portuguese families operating in the South Indian Sri Lankan region had access to resources in Sri Lanka under the umbrella of of dip- diplomatically established political relations. Um, the system was far from perfect, but relatively stable, up to the late 16th century. For example, the monarchs of Kote in the southwest of Sri Lanka, who were the most respected royal family in uh, Sri Lanka, were vassals of the Portuguese crown. Um, And this this deal of vassalage, uh, whilst posing a number of problems, uh, also functioned remarkably well over a remarkably long period of time. Um, This is what I've argued in in uh, an article uh, with a funny title, The Matryoshka Principle and How It Was Overcome. So the Matryoshka Principle was the principle by which uh, a, a Sri Lankan imperial realm controlled by the monarchs of Cote could insert itself as a bubble into the wider imperial realm of the Portuguese empire um, and and benefit from the protection, the military protection Um, that the Portuguese crown could provide, uh, to some extent, in the region. Now this system broke down um, at the end of the 16th century, and it would be very tempting to argue that this breakdown was due to uh, the influence of Spanish conquista politics brought from the New World to South Asia after the Union of Crowns happened in 1580-81. And certainly and actually some historians have argued that there must be a link. However, when once you look into the documentation in some detail, you, you begin to see that it becomes very difficult to state that there was some sort of direct Spanish influence on the way the Portuguese changed their approach in Sri Lanka. W- what happened in Sri Lanka is that the last Sinhalese monarch of Cote died without leaving an heir. Philip II was the beneficiary of a testament that had been worked out some years earlier, um, making him the successor to the throne of Cote in the same way as other Habsburgs had become the kings of Castile, um, the king of Portugal. Now, Philip II was also made the king of Cote. And Philip II failed to understand the complexity of Sri Lankan geopolitics. Um, basically, he understood his mandate as the King of Cote to be a mandate of direct rule over the island as a whole, and direct rule, to impose direct rule, you needed to deploy direct conquest. You needed to re- conquer the whole island to subject it to your rule directly. Um, this is what um, the Portuguese imperial authorities set out to do in the 1590s and 1600s. And yet there is no clear, there is no clear articulation between the imperial prospects of Philip II, um, the administration in Lisbon, the administration in Goa, and what actually happened on the ground. Um, In fact, once you look into the exact chronology of things, what you find is that a lot of things were going on in uh, the East independently from uh, any any Spanish influence. Uh, in fact, there was, and we are coming back to the rivalry between different factions, between different families and networks in, operating in the in the region. Um, the Union of Crowns and the transition of the 1580s 90s is clearly a moment where the status quo that had been working for a number of people. Uh, in this region, um, is challenged by a group of people who want to change uh, the order of things, the hierarchy, the, the the workings of the state, and who think that they can use the union of crowns as um, a trigger to deeper changes in the way the empire works in Asia. So it's really. Portuguese people in the empire in Asia who, after 1580, see an opportunity to re-centralize the empire, make it more efficient, make it militarily more, more capable, more capable of striking, um, and who think that, for example, tax revenues need to be centralized in a way that had not been the case before. In other words, the Union of Crowns, the integration of portugal and the portuguese empire into the catholic monarchy of philip ii and philip iii and philip iv gives an opportunities to to some people in the the portuguese empire to change things and that's what they're going to try to do
0: to what extent did the portuguese lay the diplomatic groundwork for later european efforts to
1: establish themselves in asia i'm not sure if we can identify at least not right now any direct connections, any direct articulations between the way the Portuguese uh, built up their capabilities diplomatically, the way they built up experience and the way other Europeans uh, conducted diplomacy in Asia um, from the late 16th century onwards. Uh, But indirectly, I think um, there are some very clear signs that the Portuguese paved the way that they prepared the ground. First of all, the Portuguese over a whole century produced an enormous amount of information uh, or, or channeled an enormous amount of information about the geography, ethnography, the, the perception of, of Asian societies in general into European culture. So everything that was written in, in in Europe about Asia in the 16th century was really coming through the lens of Portuguese expansion in way, one way or another. Very few other Europeans, Um, traveled through Asia independently and wrote independently from the Portuguese imperial experience. So much of the information available to the Dutch and the English around 1600 that made it much easier for them to approach Asia than it had been for Vasco da Gama, much of that information was produced or, or channeled through the Portuguese networks in the 16th century. I think a century of Portuguese diplomatic interaction with Asian polities also prepared the ground in terms of patterns of interaction. Of um, And this is where it becomes really important that we don't forget that we're we are talking about a two-way process. Uh, I have been talking here about the Portuguese because Portuguese sources are what I am able to read best and what I, I work with most efficiently. But... Of course, all of this uh, can only be fully understood if we also take into account the Asian side, the Mughal side, the um, the side of the Calicut elite in in 1498, what what did the Chinese want um, in 1513, what did the, the Japanese want in the 1540s, etc., etc. And I think where the 16th century really changed things and prepared the way f- for a wider process of globalization uh, of global diplomacy uh, with other European powers was, was that these various Asian polities learned to deal with Europeans. So I have emphasized how the Portuguese learned to behave diplomatically, how the Portuguese became more efficient over time in terms of diplomacy. They by no means became perfect diplomats. So blunders kept happening. Uh, usually not major blunders, but problems arose throughout the 16th century, and I think um, Asian diplomats or Asian courts also got used to to some extent to the way uh, the Portuguese operated, and, and, and that was a way that prepared the ground for the operations of Dutch and English envoys. Um, in fact, one of the one of the funny um, things about European diplomacy in Asia is that Portuguese diplomacy, later Dutch diplomacy, was, of course, conducted on behalf of monarchies that were relatively small. Even the English uh, uh, kings were not particularly powerful within 16th century Europe. Now, when Portuguese or then later Dutch and English diplomats arrived, say, at the Mughal court, they would emphasize how they were dispatched by the greatest of lords in the West. Uh, which was, of of course, a lie. I suspect that over time, Asian rulers uh, became, became used uh, to these subterfuges, to these lies, and actually also learned to to play with them, to use them against Europeans, to play them out against each other, uh, to, to ask the Dutch, well, if you are, if the Portuguese say you don't even have a king, what do you reply to that? Or they could say they could they could ask the Portuguese, well, the Dutch are telling us that your country in Europe is really quite small. What do you have to tell us about that? So there's a number of very often very interesting, very funny instances of of rivalry later arising between Portuguese, Dutch, English and other diplomats. Um, And I think uh, it's quite fascinating how the Asian political landscape learned to to absorb, to integrate these rivaling European powers, these often slightly idiosyncratic envoys coming from various different places, claiming to be representatives of different kings, polities, not always transmitting a very coherent uh, message regarding who they were, what they wanted in Asia. And yet things kept going on, and, and ultimately diplomacy diplomatic negotiations, the circulation of diplomatic gifts really lubricated uh, the interaction of polities, European and Asian, uh, throughout the early modern period. Um, I think they prepared the ground for some imbalances of power um, in some instances. So diplomacy is not just about establishing uh, equal relations. It's about within a setting that assumes that all kings are kings, establishing who is more powerful and who has the higher ranking, the higher status, uh, more power, more uh, a a greater ability to inflict violence on the other. So this is by no means a system that we should romanticize in any way. Uh, And However, negotiation, diplomatic negotiations, were really at the heart of the integration of these various political systems, these various polities into one bigger whole during the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. It's really thanks to diplomacy, thanks to these many different channels of diplomacy, agents of diplomacy, that um, globalization could happen in the early modern period as we now understand it.
0: Okay. Uh, So finally then, um what are the main points you would like to emphasize to people about Portuguese negotiative efforts in Asia in the early modern period?
1: For those of us less familiar, uh, what should we take away from this? Well, first of all, I would like to encourage everyone to to really engage with the existing history historiography of the Portuguese Empire. There's some very good stuff written in English about the Portuguese Empire that I think anyone interested in early modern global history in the Spanish Empire, but also in English-British expansion or Dutch expansion or even French expansion, um, should should be familiar with. Um, it's, it's, it's really, we are in the 21st century, um, Portuguese history, Portuguese imperial history should really be part of the mainstream um, as the history of any other empire uh, in this period. Um, so I would, first of all, like to encourage everyone to Read more about uh, the Portuguese Empire in Asia, about um, these these various things that I've been talking about. In fact, I would I would make two recommendations in terms of bibliography uh, beyond the things that I have written. Um, of course, one of them is a very little noticed article by the Canadian historian Ivana Elbo, titled "Cross Cultural Trade and Diplomacy: Portuguese Relations with West Africa." This was published in 1992 in the then relatively new Journal of World History. Uh, it's a great piece um, showing how West Africa really prepared the Portuguese for the diplomatic endeavors that they were to face in Asia. The the, the other piece was um, written by um, my colleague Stefan Halikovsky-Smith from Swansea. Um, in fact, at the same time as I wrote my article on my first article on Portuguese diplomacy, um, Stefan halikowski Smith's article "The Friendship of Kings" was in the Ambassadors: Portuguese Diplomatic Embassies in Asia and Africa, um, was published in Portuguese Studies in 2006, um, and is also it's it's really a great piece to get to learn um, to to start engaging with uh, the, the the question of Portuguese diplomacy uh, in Asia. So what would I like um, people to take away uh, from this interview? I think, in the first place, I would like to transmit just a fascination with the incredibly colorful, varied, eventful, dramatic, often um, history of Portuguese Asian diplomacy. Um, it's it's the the incredible uh, apprenticeship that the Portuguese went through. Um, the Variety of approaches of solutions found to negotiate in places going from Kilwa on the east coast of Africa through Hormuz facing Safavid Iran, uh, through Diu, Daman, Basin, all ports that had some uh, relation with the Mughal Empire, um, through Goa, the South Indian ports, the Sri Lankan uh, outposts, um, all the way to Southeast Asia. Um, China, Japan in all these places the Portuguese had to deploy different uh, strategies so there were obviously some commonalities but in each of these places um, envoys had to adapt, had to find translators, interpreters uh, had to find ways of pleasing the other side um, and had to confront all sorts of different rules that were obviously not set in stone not written down so there was a lot of improvisation. I think the fact that this was such a loosely structured empire, the Portuguese empire, makes it particularly interesting. Um, To me, one of the most wonderful things about this whole story is that it occurs in the 16th century as uh, Europe is going through the Renaissance and a number of other cultures are going through processes that seem to be connected in terms of empire building, of state making, of building up administrations, of encountering the other, talking and writing about the other processes that that are somehow connected with the growth of Europe, the expansion of Europe. So uh, I think what we increasingly see is that uh, Europe is becoming globally connected at a time when a number of other uh, cultures, societies, empires are also becoming globally connected um, and pushing their own agenda. Um, getting involved with the Europeans, not just because the Europeans were expanding, but because they had themselves an interest in going global, uh, in having global connections, be that the Mughals, the Safavids, um, ruling elites of China, of Japan. As the world becomes increasingly interconnected during the 16th century, the Portuguese are there. They are the right people in the right place, if you want. They are. Serving as the go-betweens, the people who are establishing contacts, who are making connections, who are working on these connections, who make sure with their Asian counterparts that things keep rolling. And this is really the most most fascinating part of the story. The outcome was nowhere set in stone. Nobody knew what the situation would be 100 years later or 200 years later. Nobody knew that Europe would come to dominate the world a few centuries later. So uh, all this is happening in a very open, very unstable uh, environment um, where people really have to make an effort and really have to work to find commonalities, common ground, to communicate with each other, to keep the conversation going. And I think we can only really understand this process and this, this, this process, which is at the heart of globalization, of early modern globalization, if we understand the role played therein by the Portuguese. And the Portuguese, in
0: that sense, are pioneers uh, in the most fundamental way. They're not just pioneers of sailing, not just pioneers of astronomical navigation, they're also pioneers in
1: diplomacy and negotiation. Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm trying to say.
0: Well, Dr.
1: Zoltan Biederman, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me.